0: This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Dr. Adam Naderstey, a professor at the Department of English Linguistics at the the University of Budapest. Dr. Nadesht is uh, quite the jack of all trades. He's a linguist and a poet as well. And he's translated um, many Shakespeare comedies from English into Hungarian. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.
1: I translated tragedies as well as comedies. I have to point out uh, Hamlet Uh, or Romeo and Juliet. uh, Oh, fantastic! Quite a number of things.
0: It's quite a quite a broad area to to cover for our interview today. So perhaps for the listeners back home, um, let's start with a little bit of the historical context of uh, language in uh, England at the time that you're, you're researching. So, would you mind telling us a little bit about the Um, The language situation in um, post-Norman conquest England if you please.
1: I teach uh, a subject called history of English Mm -hmm. and uh, we just had what we call a prelim a preliminary test with students helping them towards the examination a bit like a mock exam and one of my questions was from the textbook What is (laughs) Anglo-Norman? And many of them failed because they didn't realize that Anglo-Norman is French and that this is really a curious uh, language, a situation, where French was spoken on the territory of England, or Great Britain, Not by foreigners, but by people actually living there. There Mm -hmm. was a significant minority who were just French-speaking, like uh, there are Welsh-speaking in Wales and so on. England was a bilingual country Mm -hmm. in the early part of of this uh, period, after the Norman Conquest. And Anglo-Norman, Anglo refers to the geography and not the language. And many of them made the mistake of thinking that this was somehow a mixture of English and French. I see. Whereas the mixture of English and French was what we call English. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Anglo-Norman was just pure French. I see. Interestingly, French at that time did not borrow anything from English because English was at a much lower civilizational level, had much less prestige. I see. Whereas French was the the leading language
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how did these two groups operate together I mean the people who were speaking English and the people who were speaking this, this Anglo-Norman French
1: Well, it wasn't easy at first time. uh, England was conquered Mm -hmm. by uh, a group of people who called themselves the Normans. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, maybe we should look at this name itself because it's interesting. Norman, of course, means Scandinavian originally. Right. But by the time they, they come into our field or our picture, they are French. But originally, they came from Scandinavia. They were Vikings, really, mm-hmm. who settled in the north of France, which still bears their name, Normandy, it is called. And that happened around the year 900. Mm-hmm. And then over a 100 years, 150 years, they assimilated to the French. And they established a very... Uh, developed, uh, kingdom, dukedom is the proper word, they were theoretically under Paris. But, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, this didn't mean very much. Right, uh, right. Uh, yeah, They paid lip service, maybe, rather than military <laughs> service. And then, uh, because the king of Normandy, or the duke of Normandy in 1066, was a man called William, mm-hmm. who was second cousin to the English king who had just died, Edward, he claimed the throne, whereas this wasn't natural in England that it should go by inheritance. It was still mostly elected.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You know, the barons or the earls, as they were called, they came together and they, they chose uh, whoever they thought fit or whoever was the strongest or mm-hmm. the most frightening among them. But anyway, <laughs> it didn't have to descend by blood. And so they chose a man called Harold, who was English and who was uh, ready to administer the kingdom. And then William thought, no, he'd rather be king of England because he was second cousin to the king who died. That wasn't a very strong claim, let's face it, to be second cousin, (laughs) but he had a stronger army and that was a strong claim. And he conquered the country and it was real, real sort of dirty, dirty conquering because he... He simply either killed or deported or ousted the whole leadership of the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole political establishment, the whole elite were replaced by French. French who called themselves Normans, but uh, of course they they were French. And so um, after them, a a lower, a middle class came in Mm -hmm. with them very much like the Germans into Hungary with the Habsburgs. And so the cities were settled uh, by many French-speaking people so that the, the tailor, the tinker, the cobbler, they were French.
0: Uh, that was going to be my next question, whether or not this was uh, the, this sort of Anglo-Norman French was just something spoken at court or no. in these castles. No. Oh, okay, okay. No. So, I mean, everyday um, people who spoke English would have... Um, if they had to go into towns if they were in the markets or if they needed uh, something made for them they would they would have to encounter people who spoke French then, yes exactly.
1: Exactly. They would even have to know a bit of French.
0: I see, right. Just
1: like in this country, so many people knew a bit of German, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even if they were not German-speaking themselves. And there was a kind of give-and-take between the two languages, but only one direction, like here.
0: If you need shoes, I'd imagine, you know, you'd have to be able to communicate with someone what you needed.
1: Yeah, but that itself would not explain the unilateral channel of borrowing.
0: Fair enough, I For
1: that, you need something, how should I say this would be materialism, young man. You you need something more than that, the cultural prestige, the feeling attached to it, Mm -hmm. you know, that you knew in some way that one language was higher than the other. For military reasons, civilizational reasons, financial reasons, it's a whole complex, but You know, no matter how rich you were, if you spoke English, you still wanted to speak French for noble purposes.
0: I see, I see. And so at at court, no questions asked. French was the spoken language. Um, How long did the situation last after um, 1066
1: Yeah, well, it took, of course, a few decades to set in. It didn't
0: happen overnight. So around
1: 1100, 1150, Mm -hmm. I suppose if you walk down the streets of uh, Salisbury or London or Bristol, you heard English from one door and French from the other. Maybe more French as you went into the center of town (laughs) and more English as you went out. Don't forget the famous uh, observation, very correct, by Walter Scott in Ivanhoe, where he compares the name uh, we use, the words we use in English for the flesh of animals. Mm-hmm. And that uh, swine was the name for the, for the dirty actual animal, and pork mm-hmm. when it came on your table, and that's a French word. Yes, yes. And the same happens with sheep and mutton okay. and um, beef and veal and uh, what else? Ox and beef. There, there it goes. You know, it's interesting because the English word did not die out. It continued, but it referred to the actual animal animal tended by the Saxon peasants.
0: Well, sure. And, I mean, that sort of connotation, I think, still exists today. I mean, would you rather eat swine or would you rather eat pork? <laughs> it's no longer a choice, so to speak, okay? It's mm-hmm. just in the dictionary. And sure, you, sure, sure, You just
1: can't help it. And then around... 1300 and something. Mm-hmm. So it lasted about 200 years.
0: All right.
1: And then about 1300 and something, this Anglo-French began to decline. And that was because in France, Paris began to rise. Mm-hmm. And Norman French, and the French spoken in England, came to be felt as a dialect, as something outlandish, Mm -hmm. as something curious, something slightly ridiculous. I see. (laughs) People began to go to Paris, or people from Paris came... And they said, Jesus Christ, is that what you call French? (laughs) Do you claim you're speaking French? And they looked at him innocently and said, well, yes, I mean, all all our forefathers. We come from uh, Le Havre or somewhere in France. And the people from Paris, they shook their head and said, well, why don't you rather speak English? That's interesting. You know, it began to be provincial. I see. uh It began to be localized. It was cut off from its main French uh, roots Mm -hmm. or, or, or cord. And uh, Chaucer, for example, in Canterbury Tales, describes an elderly or mature lady, the prioress, Mm -hmm. an aristocratic woman who obviously was a speaker of French. She may have known English, why not, but Mm -hmm. uh, obviously she was French-speaking. And he says that she could not speak French of the Paris style, I see, but only of Stratford at the Bow. Now, Stratford at the Bow was a famous girls' school at the time. Well, a monastery, of course, run by nuns, but uh, educated young uh, women who were training to be nuns or prioresses went there. Uh Now, this was obviously a French language institution. What else should it have been? Mm -hmm. But the French they used was the local. Good old traditional variety of... Not Norman the Parisian French. French. And the way Chaucer describes her has something of the condescending in it. I see. Okay, he says uh, she she may have been okay in her own culture, but times have changed and she can't speak French French.
0: That's actually what I think is so interesting about the descriptions of the pilgrims in Chaucer is that he's poking fun at all of them, uh, in my opinion. I mean, um, again, talking along the lines of the languages, there's the the three um, wool workers, the the dyer. I, I can't remember the other ones, the but
1: haberdasher.
0: Right, there there, <laughs> there are these people involved in the wool trade, depicted as very nouveau riche types of folks. And um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the one thing that I remember is that the wives of these uh, three um wool workers all insisted upon being called madam
1: yes now the prioress is the opposite you know right. she's going out so to speak and her whole world yeah he's not poking fun at her yeah but he she's just passé right yes. right <laughs>
0: The 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 world is changing, and um, we'll get to Chaucer um, in a little bit. Obviously, um, this this Anglo-Norman style of French starts to decline, and by the end of the 14th century, it's on the way out. What essentially is it is it replaced with? Is it replaced with what we would call like older Middle English at yeah. this point?
1: Yes. Middle English, that's right. Okay, because the people who lived there who were of Frenchure. Uh, who were French, let's put it that way, Uh Um, when they realized that their French culture had lost out against Paris, so to say, Mm -hmm. that they were rapidly becoming a a ridiculous, provincial, spoiled French, as people would say. Of course, it wasn't spoiled French. They inherited it very decently from uh, original French. But still... They had the choice then of doing two things. Either learn French French, but that was a foreign language. Right. Okay, why speak a foreign language in the middle of England? (laughs) Or learn English. And that helped, interestingly, uh, the rise of English at the cost of English being heavily confused with French or compounded with French. Mm -hmm. So that English has a tremendous amount of French words. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not only refined words like German has or Hungarian has or other Russian, other languages, but basic words like prison, for example, or army or uh, jury and so on. So this meant that English had to put up with this huge importation of French and a generation of serious poets, one called John Gower, and the other Geoffrey Chaucer who began uh, their work in around 1360-70 they decided to write serious works in English but not against French but embracing this curious French inheritance so that The older colleagues, and maybe up in the north, you know, people who read Gower and Chaucer, they shook their head and said, tot, tot, (laughs) if you write English, you you shouldn't do that. Keep your English pure and don't allow the French. Or then write in French, that's fine. But they said no, Hmm. because both of those alleys are a dead end. Hmm. If you wanted to keep English pure, it would die and become poor. And French, of course, then you would just have to imitate Paris.
0: For this for this portion I wanted to talk a little bit about changes in the English language um, in the late medieval and early modern periods Uh, what happens to the English language from Chaucer to Shakespeare essentially
1: let's make it clear that what we call the middle English period Mm -hmm. lasts from about 1100 to 1500 and um, the 15th century really is is one of, of great upheaval because that's when the wars of the roses take place. Of course. Think of Shakespeare's Richard the 3rd and all that world. And um maybe this has something to do with the development of a new partly a new aristocracy, new schooling, new new consciousness, no, new culture if you like. And after which, from 1500 onwards, we really have modern English, okay, early modern English, you might call it, but mm-hmm. it's basically the same language as uh, we now uh, have, and, and you have Shakespeare, and you have the King James uh, version the of the Bible. Yes. So. One wonders whether the French influence only affected the vocabulary, mm-hmm. like you know prison and um, army uh, <laughs> army and flower and so on. or. Yes, compare bloom and flower, for example, you still still it's still there, you know yes. <laughs> when you want something really beautiful, then it's a flower, yes, when it's just anywhere, then it's just blooming. bloom now, so. One wonders, and this is an unsettled question in linguistics, whether it also affected the grammar of English, the system of the language. Because it's easy to borrow words, and Hungarian borrows words from German and English and French, but the grammar remains the same. That is to say, even if a word which Hungarian borrows from German is feminine, it will not be feminine in Hungarian because there is no such category. Right, right. But with English, one doesn't know. Like the genitive, for example, is hardly ever used, except in uh, when it's a person's, so a John's house, or Mary's father. We still use that. But we don't say the house's entrance. Mm-hmm. We say mm-hmm. the entrance of the house, and even more importantly, we don't say, I'm afraid John's. But you have to say, I'm afraid of John. Mm-hmm. That is to say... Even when we use the genitive, it's really the possessive only. It has to express possession. Right. And it's not used for other purposes, as opposed to French or Russian or Hungarian, where the genitive is used for various expressions which don't really have possession in them. Now, this is very similar in English and French. I see. Okay. Uh Now, whether this was so, just like in French, you have « de the little word D-E, Mm de, in English you have of, O-F, and they work uh, very Very much um, the same way. After Chaucer and Gower, we get around 1400, and then the battle is won and English is used uh, everywhere, except that in court, in the legal system, they still use, down more or less to the present day, amazingly, a few French expressions, like, at least I learned when I was young that in a, a serious court in England, when you had a, a crime process, you had to shout, oh yes, before it began. And oh yes means, hear, everybody, listen, mm. in um, Norman French. And that this was somehow a, a, a ritual, so to speak, to open the uh, the proceedings. So there are a few... Strange uh, expressions, um, dowager, which means a widow who has um, proprietary rights over her husband's uh, Estate, property. Yeah, uh-huh. The pronunciation changed radically during the Wars of the Roses period, so that this is why we now call the letter A, A. Rather than calling it "ah" as everybody else does uh, on the continent, and from Vancouver to Vladivostok. Because the sound changed. Now, a word like Satan, the devil, used to be Satan, like everywhere else. But in English, every R ah went to A, mm. including the name of the letter itself. I so see. instead of saying this is a letter R, ah, now we say this is a letter, letter a. a, because... That is also the sound A changing to A. This is called the great vowel shift. Now, what is interesting in it that by that time the spelling was established and so it does not follow the vowel change. This is why we write Satan as if it was still Satan. Satan. Uh If you're Spanish, if you're Hungarian, you look at it and you think this is Satan. Or take another word, the Bible, which is Bibel everywhere in the world. But in English, the letter I, or shall I say rather the letter which used to be called E, but is now <laughs> called I, uh-huh. has changed its pronunciation. And this is why we say Bible. But the spelling is usually left unchanged. That makes it easier to read older English stuff. But it would be very difficult to hear them speaking before 1500. There are such recordings, you know, like professors trying to imitate. Like in archaeology, you Mm -hmm. reconstruct the building from the few stones that you have left, Uh but it sounds like Dutch, really.
0: One of my um, professors ages ago told me that if um, Queen Elizabeth I um, was around uh, today, you know, time machine or something, and she comes to visit today, and she heard someone from... London speak versus someone from, let's say, Boston speak. She would point to the person from Boston and say, "This is my subject," because in an American English, I'm I'm a prime example of that. Um, the A's are very flat. So, for instance, you know, we talk about the past rather than the past, and that the sort of broadening of these vowels like um, A and O. Happened more, I think you said in the, at the Hanoverian court in like the 18th century.
1: I agree. You have now pointed out features in which current American pronunciation is conservative vis a vis the British. But every variety has its innovating parts as well. Like you guys, for example, um, well, I shouldn't say confused, but <laughs> you have merged uh-huh. that's a more elegant expression T and D.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs>
1: okay, so that um, writing and writing to me are two different words, and they would have been to her. Yes. Okay, she would be surprised that for C-I-T-Y, you say city, as which as just sounds city. like a D in the middle. On the other hand, she would have appreciated the fact that you still pronounce the R sound, so that you, to you um, park is still park. You okay. can hear the R there, okay. I see. Right. That's right, a great right, right. conservatism. Whereas, in at least in in southern British English, this has been abandoned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that when I say Bob, you will say Barb. Barb. And when you say Bob, I would say Bob. That. So she would generally, I think, prefer the American variety as being closer to her own. Uh, accent. Yes, it's more conservative.
0: Interesting. Well, sort of a similar parallel, one might say, to what was happening with the Anglo-Norman French, perhaps. Are you
1: suggesting, that's an interesting question for a historian, are you suggesting that an export culture, or a colonial culture, so to speak, is more conservative than the ones who remain at home? Oh,
0: my. That Uh,
1: might that might be true in fact because you might want to cling more closely to what you left behind you want to you want to set your anchor more deeply <laughs> than those people who are in the harbor anyway yeah that's possible think of the dutch who went to south africa mm-hmm. and continued to speak what they thought was still Dutch. Dutch. And after a while, the Dutch came and visited them and said, you guys no longer speak Dutch. This is horrible. (laughs) You you make up your mind. Either (laughs) speak Zulu or come back to Holland. And they said, no, we want to stay here. You go back to Holland, and we shall from now on call this language Afrikaans because Mm -hmm. we are in Africa. Mm -hmm. And then just don't call it Dutch, and then you can no longer require us to satisfy the rules of the Amsterdam uh, University Department.
0: That's the funny thing with studying languages that they're constantly evolving in, in, in so many different ways. I'm I'm taking a Hungarian class right now, and the oh. uh, on Tuesday we had um, we just briefly um, were talking about the fact that a lot of new imported words a hundred years ago these were imported words from German. Nowadays, for especially things like technology, they tend to be imported from English. Yep.
1: Let's add that uh, because English is so much infused with French and then Latin, many of the words that are now borrowed into Hungarian, Czech, Bulgarian, or whatever, from English are in fact Latin words, which people easily recognize. That wasn't the case with German. German is more German, but... Uh, Take the, the recent Hungarian expression celeb, a celebrity, okay? It's a, it's a shortening, a clipping of this word. Right. But, of course, this is from Latin, celebritas mm-hmm. in right. Latin, and everybody recognizes that, and it isn't even pronounced with S at the beginning as the English language would do, it's celebrity. Well, in current Hungarian, we say celeb. Oh, okay. Because uh-huh. we have the... Central European Latin tradition Right, right, right. Which distinguishes between "cur" and So, mm. you know So we say Ticero Not Kikero mm-hmm. As uh, the The real Latin <laughs> Right And so Celeb is now used As a As a Latinism Really Funnily enough <laughs> Though it comes Through English
0: Getting, getting back to the uh, the changes that were occurring in English language in the late medieval period, um, what sort of um, things in Chaucerian English, what sort of things tend to be dropped? I mean, what sort of aspects of the language tend um, not to continue on into the modern period? We had more
1: syllables than we had. So t- today you would say fresh flowers, and he would have said fresher That is to say, he would have endings at the ends of words, a bit like German. Right, that's right. Frische Blumen. Mm -hmm. And those have disappeared. Also, like he would say bathed for bathed. Okay. Okay. Took, went swimming. Uh mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. He would
1: say bathed. That meant (laughs) that he needed fewer words in a line of verse. Because the words had more syllables, I see. and they nicely padded up his rhythm. These are still written. Usually, we write name N A M E, but we wouldn't think that this word is two syllables. Oh, right. We would say name, and there's a silent e at the end, which to us looks like it serves the lengthening of the vowel, but it doesn't really, because it was name original.
0: How very interesting.
1: Now. By the time of the 18th century, they no longer understood this. And a man like John Dryden, for example, who was a great uh, enthusiast for Chaucer, he thought that he never got his syllables right. But Chaucer was somehow a very talented man, very witty, full of vigor and life, but he was just a bad poet because he he couldn't count his syllables. Ah. That his verse was irregular, said Dryden. And, I mean, you can't blame him. He sat down and read it as his then English competence
0: uh, suggested to him on one hand it's english on the other hand well the english language has changed a lot in the past 4 or 500 years i
1: don't know whether the difficulty of shakespeare is uh, mainly due to the changes of the language or the changes of the way we we understand things or you know the way we we buy things let's <laughs> be very frank okay right. <laughs> that is to say Packing so much into one sentence, Mm -hmm. um, um, answering in what seems a devious way, beginning far at the beginning and then sort of zeroing in as to what you want to say. Try this once. I mean, I actually I did try There's an excellent series of books published in America, which is called No Fear Shakespeare. I can only recommend uh, these books. They can only be used, of course, in private with consenting adults. <laughs> uh, never show it to young people. <laughs> they will find out anyway. Uh, but they have uh, they have it on both pages. On one page you have the original text, yes. and on the other page you have it in current English.
0: Yes, I've heard about them. I That's remember right. hearing about them. I yeah. use
1: them when I translate I I use anything because sometimes it's just so difficult or so complicated. Or maybe it's easy, but you have a terrible suspicion that there's a joke there maybe which you are not getting. Right, right. That's the most dangerous uh, part of it. And then you go to whoever you can go to. I speak German well, so I often check in a German translation as well what they did. This No Fear Shakespeare diligently translated, and sometimes the text on the other side, the modern English text, isn't easier at all. You know, you can change, of course, cometh to comes. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, that's a big deal. But it's still, you know, what are they talking about? What is this whole thing? That's the imagery and the the drama, which is difficult.
0: For things like um, comedy and humor, I mean, that's something that's, it's difficult to translate into a block of text when it's, for instance, something very slapstick heavy. Oh, yes.
1: And it is sometimes.
0: Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about uh, English and French, and now I want to move over to Italian. (laughs) One of your current ongoing projects is a translation of Dante. So would you mind telling us um, just very briefly uh, what you're working on at the moment? This is the
1: Divine Comedy, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing a Hungarian translation. I'm just over halfway. Oh, fantastic. It consists of a 100 Chapters, cantos, as he calls them. And I've done 55, I think, so far. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's still a lot to go, but Uh every translation work speeds up towards the end. Mm -hmm. That's an old observation. Because you become familiar with the whole thing, you become familiar with the setting, you have taken a few decisions, and then you just go on applying them. And... um, this work is uh, well known to Hungarian readers as well. There are several translations uh, done so far. The inferno, the hell uh, part, is more popular. Of course. Uh, maybe, maybe more interesting for the modern reader, more dramatic. There's, uh, there's partly more stories included enough about people's lives. definitely, And also there's more... To see descriptions are more vivid there, like somebody's half snake and half man and so on.
0: There are also celebrities. I mean, there are
1: celebrities everywhere. There's oh, fair enough. I- interestingly, there's only celebrities practically, <laughs> and he apologises and he says, uh, "I have, um, I have been shown ah, only celebrities. I see. because the reader will be more interested and it will be more convincing to the reader. I see. the the parable, the example, if it's about a celebrity."
0: I thought it was very interesting how he puts he puts different kings in different circles of hell depending on how well or not well they ruled. <laughs> That's
1: right. What is even more interesting is that um hell and purgatory mm-hmm. as he describes them are places which uh, which work so to speak um whether you whether he visits them or not so it's like going on a visit to a factory you Mm -hmm. know which is operating anyway and so he just he's led around by the general manager and shown the various uh, parts of the factory but with heaven the paradise of Paradiso as Mm. he called it it's different because there are no people in in heaven in the various spheres as he go up the sphere of the moon mm-hmm. the sun jupiter and so on because every blessed soul is way up outside all these stars in what is called the empyrean and god sends characters to encounter dante in each of these spheres i see. so that they can explain to him how they lived and so on and that's this curious because the way he goes up to heaven is really science fiction they all knew and they knew correctly that these heavenly bodies are there right I mean, they are really there what they didn't know was whether the earth revolves around the sun or the other way around mm. all right that wasn't so easy to discover but the fact that they were there the fact that that saturn is more far away than jupiter and so they knew all that and so he in in the paradise part he imagines an imaginary journey through what is there anyway through what is undoubtedly fact.
0: Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Every university textbook would have described the heavens exactly as he describes them. All he right. doesn't invent anything. Mm-hmm. He just moves around there. He uh, has this, uh, goes from place this to place. woman uh, friend, Beatrice, and mm-hmm. she sort of takes him here and there and so on. Real science fiction. Whereas the other two parts, which are on earth, hell and purgatory, he more or less makes it clear that this is his invention, but he describes it as completely real. That is to say, this is like old-fashioned fiction, Mm -hmm. you know, an an imaginary journey to a country which doesn't exist, but otherwise everything works.
0: Both about, you know, the... hell and purgatory being on earth and the heavens and the skies, especially, I mean, one of the most common misconceptions about the Middle Ages, which s- starts in the 19th century, was that people thought that the earth was flat, which, I mean, no. just it, no. plain is not true. I mean, no. sa- sailors, for instance, could see the curvature of the earth yeah. when they were out on the sea. I mean, it's just it's just common sense.
1: Oh, he often describes that the earth is is a globe but what is interesting is that they thought it was much smaller mm-hmm. than it is mm-hmm. i was surprised to see he thinks for example help me how much is the time difference between the two ends of the mediterranean so say uh, jerusalem and uh, lisbon um four hours
0: some, something like that
1: so when it's uh, midday in lisbon it's four in the afternoon already in jerusalem yes is that right
0: something like that yes okay
1: And he thought it was six hours, he thought the Earth was much smaller, Mm -hmm. and so the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. from one end to the other, was one-fourth of the globe. Oh, I see. Whereas in reality, it's It's only one-sixth of the globe. But he knew that you had to cover it in 24 hours. Of course, of course. And so he thought it was six hours. Oh. Now, that means because they didn't have a really good watch or clock, because otherwise, you know, you you need one for the east-west, for the longitude. Mm-hmm. You need a clock, a chronometer, as they called it later. And that, I understood when I worked on Dante, that led to the the, the mistake which Columbus made he thought he would get to India much faster
0: uh-huh. because
1: he thought the earth was uh, half as big as, as it is, in fact. Right. And right. so after a few weeks, he got to a, a, a land, and he thought, okay, here we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he didn't realize that the big part of the journey would only begin then from right, Panama yeah. to Singapore uh-huh. is much more than from here to Panama.
0: There's no real way that people could have known that there was this gigantic land mass between... No. You know, um, let's say Lisbon and Singapore, for That's instance.
1: Right. Yeah. Especially because they thought there was no room for it.
0: Right, okay? right. That's right.
1: Furthermore, Dante realizes that because the Earth is a, is, a, is, a, is a sphere, on the southern hemisphere, the sun at midday seems to be in the north. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is obvious if you think of it. So in Johannesburg you go out to the north side of your house to enjoy the sunshine.
0: Rather than the south. Exactly. I see. Uh
1: And so he describes a person um, looking to the east where the sun is rising. She's standing on the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes midday and she looks to the left.
0: Uh
1: Okay, now if you look...
0: To, to the, the north.
1: Okay. And uh-huh. he, he knows this, and he's, he's very proud of his knowledge of geography. I see. They knew the latitudes, how far north you are. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That comes from ancient Greece. But the longitude, how, how much you have traveled east and west, they will only realize, I think, in the 16th century when they have clocks which you can take with you on the ship mm-hmm. and which would never stop. Even though the ship would uh, careen and and uh, wave and so.
0: One thing that I've noticed about a lot of the really popular um, medieval um, and early modern authors is that they like to they like to play a lot of word games and um, there's a lot of humor in sort of how it, how the sentences are structured. Is that the same? He's for him? not.
1: A, he's not a humorous. No, I see. I see. No. No. He's not like. Boccaccio, right, or even Shakespeare, I see. who can uh, mix uh, the tragic with the humorous, and mm-hmm. he does. No, no, Dante is so- not like that. He doesn't really have a sense of humour. <laughs> he has an amazing imagination, you uh-huh. know, like a film director, and especially in those days when even painting was very rare and childish. Mm-hmm. The, the things he described, you know, they they loved him because they closed their eyes
0: and they could and there
1: him. it was, you know, they almost like seeing a film, but not uh, humour. He can be ironic, mm. but he's generally very bitter. I see bitterly critical. What is the world coming to? It's interesting. Even in paradise, he finds the way of being bitter and critical. <laughs> Because, yes, Dante meets some blessed soul Uh who says, oh, yes, I've been good all my life and so on. But now come here, son. Look down on earth. Look what's happening in Florence. I see. And it begins, you know, how immoral everybody is. (laughs) And there we go again.
0: What sort of difficulties have you encountered trying to translate the Divine Comedy Mm -hmm. into Hungarian? In the original, you have a subtle rhyme scheme mm-hmm.
1: but I abandoned that I did not follow the rhyming like modern, modern translators in many uh, cases they say you can't have everything and uh, I rather go for the clearness of the meaning well what is difficult often is that he compresses things into one line mm. which really would merit three lines I see. if you wanted to explain them now what shall I do You know, shall I explain them Or shall I keep it as mysterious as he did it? And then the shrug and say, well, reader, if you want to read Dante, Mm. here it is. But then the reader is going to put down the book. And I would like the reader to continue with the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel a bit like the gym teacher, you know, who who wonders, maybe I should give an easier task and then all children will jump happily. Um. Or rather, (laughs) I shall keep it up to that level. But then most children will just, sit and not do anything.
0: Uh, then there is the matter of excessive footnotes, I mean, where there are so many, <laughs> there are so <laughs> many, right. you know, aside that, you know, it, it, yeah. it's important, you want the readers to know it, but exactly. how do you say it in as is, is few words as possible? I sometimes,
1: I, I love footnotes and I have them, and, but sometimes I measure it in inches, quite seriously, <laughs> yeah. that they should never be more than... Uh, one third of the page. Ah, uh, yes. No matter how important or unimportant, or then tell it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But it is frightening for the average reader.
0: Oh, well, it's it's overwhelming, and you 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 see a page that's two thirds footnotes, and then you think, oh, great.
1: <laughs> okay, probably in your profession, like in mine, we love that kind of thing because sometimes the footnotes actually tell you what oh, sure, people sure, sure. think and so on. But for the average reader, it could be frightening.
0: As much as I, I like having, you know, good material that talks about the sources, you know, for me, if I'm reading something in in a foreign language and I'm s- uh, reading a German text and I see a lot of German footnotes, I just sort of cry a little bit inside. <laughs> How's your Latin? Um, improving. It's not great, but it's getting better. You need
1: I think. it for your absolutely, status.
0: absolutely. Yeah. Dante was interesting because he decided
1: not to write in Latin, but and that was an unusual decision at his time.
0: Was it in Florentine? Italian? Well, Italian. Let's call it Italian. Okay, yes,
1: it. 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 There were varieties, mm-hmm. and then he chose to use the the the, Fl- the Tuscan variety, as they say. But uh, yes, it, let's call it Italian. The, the interesting thing was not which part of Italy it would come from, but that it should be in Italian mm. and not in Latin. Actually, they didn't even use the word Italian very much at that time. Well, they referred to the geography, of course, but uh, not to the language. Uh, they would have called it the vulgar vulgar language, okay, the, the, the popular, the, the common, simple, yeah, vulgare mm-hmm. they would say and there was a great uh, debate on whether he did the right thing or not to write such a serious work mm. in uh, in the, the, the primitive uh, and vulgar language and I think he, he, he chose the good path because otherwise nobody would bother for it.
0: I think so as well. For our last little um, segment um, before we end the show, I mean I wanted to ask you, um, uh, in terms of popular imagination of the Middle Ages, I think, you know, a lot of uh, how everyone is informed about the Middle Ages is this very romantic um, view that um, crops up in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And based off of, I mean, the work that you've done, I mean, um, what is your opinion Mm -hmm. of of the sort of, Uh, 19th century Victorian era Mm -hmm. view of the Middle Ages. The
1: word Gothic comes to mind, Uh and this is really a 19th century word to describe the Middle Ages. They invented the Gothic novel, and created, if you like, an, an atmosphere of the Middle Ages or Victor Hugo with uh, oh, yes. Notre Dame de Paris. That's mm. the real... And if you hear Middle Ages, that's what you think about. Absolutely. Now, nothing is more alien uh, to Dante than uh, the gothicness of of any kind. Of course, he was Italian, you can always say. <laughs> There's always a bit of sunshine there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things cannot be that gloomy. But also... Um, let me point out something interesting. In the Middle Ages, there must have been a tremendous amount of illness, pain. Uh, there were people with deformities. Yes. There, were, there, were, there were wounds that would never heal. Mm-hmm. There were, okay, and they hardly ever talk about
0: it. Right.
1: They hardly ever... He never mentions. Once he says that his sight is failing. Mm-hmm. Well, he was an elderly man and he read and wrote too much by candlelight. Right. All right. But do you understand, if we went through that amount of hardship, we would complain day and night. Yes. <laughs> and it seemed that they... they Felt okay, well, that's part of life. And in the books that they, there's never a mention of toothache, for example. Hmm. You're researching the Middle Ages. Does anybody speak of toothache? Yeah. Well,
0: I know that definitely before the Black Death, they all had very good teeth, like skeletons have very good teeth. <laughs> well, exactly,
1: them. but I'm <laughs> sure it must have
0: happened. Well, or, obviously. Or, or, okay, and other, you see abscesses exactly, on skeletons, other so things. It, it does happen.
1: You see, that the, they had a certain. Uh, an, an enjoyment of life, if you like, maybe not in the sense that we do, which makes them ignore mm-hmm. this gloomy side of life rather than embrace the gloomy side.
0: And I think in, in letters uh, and in correspondence, it will usually conclude with something like, you know, I hope this finds you in good health. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that you, you read it so many times it becomes a, a platitude. But I think, you know the sen- the sentiment of i hope you are in good health i d- really think is something that can easily be underestimated oh
1: yes oh yes
0: dr natarjee thank you so much for joining thank us you. today it's been a real pleasure um having you here uh, on on our show and um for the listeners back home be sure to tune into us on the web we have the um, old address you all know and familiar with at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu radio. We also have a new website up where you can also listen to our broadcast there, and that address is www.medievalradio.org. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. I thank you very much for listening. I hope the show finds you in good health as well. Good